All right, good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started with today's study in just a moment. So if you want to continue to say good morning, grab a water or some coffee. And again, to our online friends and family, we're so glad that you are able to join us from wherever you are this morning. And we'll go ahead and begin with our church memory verse, which is 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Again, you don't have to uh, look down at your Bibles for this, because what I want to do is work through this together and have you respond. So I'll read just a few words, just a, a brief phrase, and if you can repeat after me as the church. And so we will practice memorizing this verse together. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It is about the authority and value of the Word of God. So please repeat after me. All Scripture, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. All right, so we're continuing our study of the book of Acts in a series we're calling Authentic Church. The book of Acts records the birth of the Christian church in all of its glory as well as its struggle. So the scriptures not only affirm for us what the church is, what it's meant to be, and what it's meant to do, it also highlights for us those dangers, those trials, and those tribulations that the church has faced, not just once at the very beginning of its history, but rather our recurring challenges that the church must be careful to pay attention to. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at one of those very things in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 9 through 25. We'll read that passage in just a moment. We'll ask for the power and help of the Holy Spirit in receiving this as the Word of God and letting it transform our lives. But before we do that, you know, one of the things that's always a challenge for a pastor is preaching the good news. Because preaching the good news requires that you also preach the bad news, right? Like, that's the problem. And nobody wants to be disliked, at least for the sake of being disliked, or at least I hope. Um, so, you know, it's one of these things where I don't want to give people bad news. Uh, I, I don't want to needlessly offend people. But in order to preach the gospel, you do have to give some bad news. And part of the bad news is Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, again, as Christians, we have to be careful that while we don't want to be disliked and we don't want to be needlessly Offensive. We have to recognize that, look, at the end of the day, no matter how sweet your language is, how much honey you put on it, no matter how much relationship you build and do good works you do, at the end of the day, it is possible, even likely, for many people to be offended anyway by the preaching of the gospel. Because it does demand that we all confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's the fundamental level. So, I'm just going to get the bad news out of the way this morning. You're, you're all sinners in need of a Savior. You've all fallen short of the glory of God. But I thought of it. There's a way I can say that that I think will actually make you feel good. Okay? So I'm going to say that you're all sinners. You've all fallen short. You need Jesus. But how many of you have sinned so bad they actually named a sin after you? Can you raise your hand? Have you sinned so bad someone actually named a sin after you? Okay, uh, for our friends online, nobody raised their hand. This is, this is a good thing. Well, during the Middle Ages, one of the things that took place in Western Christianity 
is the church and state became fused together. And when that happened, the church became corrupt in many different ways. This was one of the things that the reformers were coming up on Reformation Day, October 31st. So for if you're a Protestant or, or an inheritor or even an admirer, maybe you come from a different tradition, but you're an admirer of the Protestant movement, if for no other reason, how they said, hey, we got to get back to the Bible. we got to get back to the Word of God because sometimes we can go to the right, we can go to the left, and we can start adding on a bunch of stuff that wasn't there or omitting stuff that was there. And so there's a lot of people, not even Protestants necessarily, who appreciate what they did. Well, one of the things people don't realize, unless you actually make it a point to study the Reformation, is the Reformation wasn't just about doctrine and getting back to the Bible. It was about fixing corrupt practices that were ongoing in the church. And one of those practices was called simony. How many of you know what simony is? Have you heard of that? Raise your hand if you've heard of simony. So simony was the sin of buying and selling church offices for money. Now, I don't know if you knew this existed. Not only did it exist in the medieval church, it was a pervasive problem. If you dive into it, what you find out is because the church and the state have been fused together, a lot of offices, such as you know the office of a bishop or cardinal and all this kind of stuff, they became very politically influential and therefore desirable and attractive to pagans. And so one of the things that would happen is if somebody wanted power and influence politically, they would give money. They would literally buy their way into a church office. And so not only were people oftentimes morally disqualified by Scripture, but they also, many of them, were unable to read. They couldn't read. They didn't know the Bible. And yet they were in charge of the caring of souls in individual churches. This uh, was called simony, and it was named after the man in our text this morning. So again, you're all sinners, but to make you feel a little bit better, you haven't had a sin named after you yet. But let's take a look at this man and the warning that Scripture presents in telling us the story of this man. So I'm calling this morning's message, The Portrait of an Apostate, or... How not to get a sin named after you. <laughs> so let us read the word of God together. Acts 9 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us go before God now and ask for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Gracious Lord, we thank you and praise you that though you have every right condemn sinners to an eternal life of judgment for the wrong that we have done, you have instead reached forward to us through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins upon the cross, to send forth the Holy Spirit, to unite us to Christ, granting us by faith a new nature, now able to live lives that are pleasing to God, we pray this morning, Lord, that you would convict our hearts of our need for you. Lord, as we look at this negative portrait of a man who serves as a warning of what we should not be, we pray for humble hearts and open minds. That if in any way we can see ourselves in this man, Simon, that we would take heed this morning. That we would have the humility to say, Lord, is it I? Lord, we are told to take heed, to be humble, for pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Help us not to look at this man, Simon, or others in the church, others in the world, and say to ourselves, I'm better than that. I could never do sin like that. Lord, it is only by your grace and taking heed according to your word that we too avoid such pitfalls. So Lord, I pray you take this text this morning, preach this gospel message to our hearts, grant us light and life, that we may please you, and by your grace never bring shame to the name of Jesus. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Again, you, you think about how unfortunate it is to have a sin named after you, man. I, I can think of some doozies uh, that I've done in my lifetime. And, and granted, I, I, you know, I, God's sanctified me so much compared to my, my younger years. And I know some of us would be pretty embarrassed um, if God were suddenly to put up a big jumbo screen, take us to, you know, the new SoFi Stadium in LA, which looks pretty amazing, by the way, um, but take us there, and imagine if you started broadcasting all the sins of your youth on there, you know, and again, by the way, not just the ones you did, the ones you wanted to do, but were scared to get caught, like, and he just starts, it, it would just be like, oh my gosh, Lord, please don't show anybody this stuff, but scripture records the shame of so many of the people in the Bible, and again, not just the villains, which I, I think Simon is that, in my opinion, here in this text, but if you think about it, what about our heroes in the Bible? Does the Bible hide their faults and flaws and their failures? As a matter of fact, if you think about it, I mean, that's an incredibly humbling thing, that the, the sin of David, a man whose heart was after the Lord's, and yet tremendous sin. Yeah, you think of Abraham, you think of his lapses of faith, the father of faith, and yes, he was. And yet you can see even a father of faith can lapse in faith at various times, trying to help God along. And yet here we have a man who doesn't just sin, but he seems to be characterized by sin. That's a difference, isn't it? It's one thing for a Christian to sin, and 1 John tells us, look, even as believers, we're going to sin, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail. But what we don't want to be is ever characterized by sin. We wouldn't want anyone to be able to look at our lives and to rightly, with evidence, be able to say, this sin characterizes them. By the grace of God, I pray that's not true. And if it is true, I pray that the chains of whatever that is would be broken this morning. Because if we've been bought by the precious blood of Christ and we belong to him, and we've been saved for the praise of His glorious grace. It's for His name 
And so we've got to be sanctified. And I think we've got to be careful because the Bible does give us characters like Simon who are obviously negative portraits. So we have pictures of what faith looks like. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about how we should have a faith that looks like Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church, and, and we want and we're put the story is put forward so that we can look at them and go, wow, look what Stephen was willing to do. He was willing to die. He was courageous. He boldly spoke the word. And we too want to be like that. But equally important, it's we want to put forward negative stories. That is these stories of warning of what not to be like. And I think sometimes we kind of ignore the danger stories. We ignore the negative stories. We just like the positive ones. But obviously, the Holy Spirit saw fit to inspire Luke, the physician, the writer of the Luke Acts two-part work, to record this story of Simon for our benefit. And so what I hope we do is pay attention if in any way, and again, I, I would hope nobody is ensnared by these things and their life is characteristic of these things. But what I'm asking this morning is if there's any seed of anything like this in us, maybe it's not even visible. It's, it's, you can't see anything growing up out of the ground, but the roots are growing down already. No one else can see it. Because that's how sin starts. Sin, sin starts small. And it grows best in the dark. And so we've got to be mindful now. The goal is a preemptive strike of the Spirit of God. We don't want to wait till the enemy establishes a military base in our lives. We want to get it now. And so that's what I'm asking. We may not be Simons. I, I don't think that we are. But we must be careful that the enemy is not doing a work which could eventually take us in a similar way. So what I want to do is point out five steps that we want to avoid that Simon took in his own life. So again, this is a portrait of a man we do not want to emulate. So how did he get there? What was he doing? Five things. Number one, he sought his own glory. Verse 8, listen to that. He sought his own glory glory. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, and look at this, claiming that he was someone great. Notice who's claiming it. He is claiming it. It's not they. This is not the language of the crowd. We're going to get to that in a moment in the next verse. Who in verse 9 is claiming that he's great? He is. He is claiming that he's great. He is seeking his own glory. And what you're going to see is that that's part of the depths of what is happening in Simon's heart. We're going to get to behavioral issues in just a moment. And typically as human beings, this is largely all we see in the lives of other people. Sometimes we can be more aware of, of intentions and motivations of ourselves, although uh, amazingly, astoundingly, we can be fairly ignorant of our own motivations and intentions if we're not careful. But certainly when it comes to dealing with other people, by and large, we're just dealing with behavior because that's really all we can see. But notice that the very first thing that's said, it's not a behavioral thing per se, though he expresses it verbally, but it's this idea in his heart that life is about seeking his own glory. Proverbs 25, 27 says this. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. You were not made to seek your own glory. You weren't made for it. Ironically, as pleasurable as it might be to have people sing your praises, what a wonderful man you are, what a wonderful woman you are, what a wonderful this, that, and the other, and we're like, yes, and, and I want to do things that bring attention to me. And, and by the way, I think as a culture, we're getting worse on this note. Social media is creating a not only a new avenue, but it is actually transforming people's minds. There is research after research being done about how social media is creating such intense anxiety to create an image 
which will in turn give a person personal worth. I read an article yesterday about young women and how there's been a mass influx of teenage girls going to doctors with tics, okay, like nervous tics. And the nervous tics apparently are due to too much social media interaction. And that these young girls are constantly trying to present an image to the world of themselves that other people will respond to and give them glory. Oh, how beautiful you look. Oh, you must all you must look like that when you wake up after, you know, 16 hours and, and three filters. You know what I mean? That like change their oh, you must always be this way. Or people always post, or at least by and large, the good things that happen to them. Oh, I got this job, I got this girlfriend, we're on this great date, we took this great vacation. And almost what is completely absent from social media is the crying, the loneliness, the despair, the failure, the suffering, the meaninglessness of life in general, but for those few little moments of pleasure when somebody clicks like on their little Instagram post, they don't show that. We're actually creating a culture of people who are seeking their own glory. And the Bible would say, you are not made for that. You are actually made to give glory, not to receive it. And so ironically, receiving glory is an addiction. And maybe some of you have been in that at some point in your lives. You were receiving glory. Man, it does feel good. Let's be honest. The Bible is honest about sin. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable. What comes after that? For a season. The Bible is honest. The Bible didn't say sin is never pleasurable. That would be a lie. Sin is pleasurable, but the world stops there. Sin is pleasurable. The Bible says for a season. It can feel good to seek your own glory. It makes you feel important. You know, I, I know that money matters to people. For some people, that's their main thing. But at the end of the day, I'm amazed at how many people will spend their fortunes to make their name great. That that's not enough. It's not just enough to know I've got, oh, I've got all this money and I can do this and I do that. I, I want to be known. I want to feel important. I want to buy importance. I want to get my name out there. But we were not made for that. Simon was not made for that. There's one of my favorite lines in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. What a great movie. That was. I love the interaction between Sean Connery and Harrison Ford as father-son. And I love this one scene, and I think this is profound. I think it's important for all of us as Christians. There's the one scene where I think it's the, the, the knights who've been charged with protecting the Holy Grail, and they're trying to stop Indiana Jones because they think he's like so many in this for evil reasons. And eventually, Indiana Jones stops the knight, and the knight, or the knight says to Indiana Jones, ask yourself why you seek the cup of Christ. Is it for his glory or for yours? That is a profound question. Why are you doing this? Even ministry for God. Pastors have to ask this. I've seen it over the years, and I think many of you have too, even super gifted ministers, pastors, Bible teachers. At some point along the way, the glory started going to them. Maybe they got into it for the right reason. It's, it's easy to think, oh, they were just always bad. I don't think life is that simple. I think even when people go wrong, sometimes, man, they started off well. They were in it for the right reasons. But you know what? Human beings were not meant to seek their own glory. And as the glory's coming in, if we don't shift it and deflect it quickly back to Jesus, it starts becoming an addiction that destroys. And when somebody is a leader, it's worse. Because that addiction won't just destroy the leader, it will also potentially destroy the people who follow them. Simon is seeking his own glory. One of the principles of the Reformation was soli deo gloria, which is Latin for glory to God alone. And that was a positive value, not a negative one. 
a positive value that the Protestant reformer says, we want to be all about this. We want this idea to describe our movement, to epitomize who we are. It is not about getting our name in lights. <coughs> it is about getting God's name lifted high. That is what it is about. It's the heart of John the Baptist. When his own followers, zealous for John's glory, said, John, we love you. We've been following you. Look, this Jesus guy. They're, they're all going after him. And what was John's response? I must decrease and he must increase. Let that be the watchword for every believer here. Simon sought his own glory. Let that never be said of us. Let us be people who seek God's glory. Let us seek to decrease in order that he might increase. Number two, Simon then directed praise to himself. He directed the praise of others to himself. Look at verse 10. To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Now, this is a crazy statement. And in the Greek, it's hard to tell exactly what is being said, but it almost sounds like they're saying that he is divine. Like this man is God's gift to the world. So we're not, it's not simply that, oh, in his ministry, we're seeing the power of God. That's not necessarily wrong. We see that with the apostles. We see that with the apostles who are very careful to seek God's glory, not their own. And any praise coming at them, they're very quick to deflect it back to the one to whom glory alone belongs. So people seeing God's work in a ministry is not, and people thinking that it's you, that's not necessarily your fault. That may happen. But what is Simon responsible to do? He's responsible to deflect it directly back to God. Instead, he receives it and he begins drawing it to himself. And this is how cult groups get started. This is how false religion and cult groups grow. They begin directing more and more attention to the leader. And the leader, rather than deflecting the glory to God, begins to receive it for himself. He actually becomes poisoned by the praise that he's receiving. 1 Peter 4.11, the Apostle Peter warned, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is glorious and humbling that God would ever use any of us sinners to bring glory to his name. Amen. Like, what a privilege is that? What an honor is that? That God would take sinners who don't deserve to be used. And that's all of us. We already said we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Same here. It is, it is a marvel that God would use us. But what we need to be very careful of is that when people see God working, because he wants to work in you, he actually wants to point people to him through you. That, that, that's what being a disciple is about, that they might see us and glorify our, our Father in heaven. That's the goal. But that's why we've got to be mindful that, look, if I'm really living after the Spirit, and I'm serving, and I'm doing good works, and I'm sharing my gifts and talents, whatever they are, whether you bless somebody with a kind word, you bless somebody financially, you help somebody with, with their physical health or, or helping them in their business. Maybe you're gifted in business and you're just helping a believer for free uh, do their business and run it better or whatever it is, whatever you're doing, it's going to be tempting for people. Many times they don't know better. If they're not a Christian, they're not going to know better and they're going to direct the praise to you. And it's your responsibility, not theirs. It's your responsibility to deflect that back to the Lord. I remember when I first got saved uh, as an adult. Again, I grew up in a Christian home. I always knew the truth, and I can't blame my parents. I don't have one of those stories. I'm sorry. I just don't. You know, I had a lousy family, and they were mean, and it's like, no, I was lousy. 
You know, I was the lousy son. I had a wonderful mother, wonderful father, stable home. They loved me. They taught me the word of God. They put up with all, all my, my problems and my issues. And I blamed everybody else. And eventually, as an adult, I realized it's my fault. It's me. Could I blame other people? Of course I could. They contributed in some way, somehow. But I'm responsible. And as I came to the Lord as an adult, I remember I was working at Bank of America and apparently the change was so noticeable, people started asking me while, while I'm at work, both my fellow uh, employees, my colleagues, as well as clients coming into the bank. And they would say, there's something about you. Uh, what, what is it? You've got joy. You've got this. You've got that. And one of the things this one precious family kept saying is, you're so amazing, Mike. You're just so amazing. You're such a good guy. And I'm like, I, I just like Peter. I just want to rend my garments. Like, no, I am not good. And believe me, if you didn't know what I was doing you know, before you see me, you wouldn't be saying that. But really, it's not me. And again, I knew what they were, they were just doing the best thing that they could. They saw something they appreciated and they just wanted to respond in, in a positive way. But it was my job to make sure I don't go, well, you do have a point. <laughs> I'm a pretty great guy, you know. There, there are a lot of scumbags out there, but not me, you know. It's like, no, it, it was tempting, I'll be honest. There was that little part of me that's like, hey, I kind of I kind of like that. This, this, this Jesus God thing's kind of cool. I wasn't getting that as much when I wasn't walking with God. So I've got a new temptation now as a believer. The temptation of God is actually working through His Spirit in my life, and there's going to be a part of me that wants to take the credit. And I learned very early at the very beginning that is something I must always work on killing. Killing that desire to take any of God's glory for myself. And so we've got to make sure, not only are we not seeking it, but when it comes, we want to make sure God gets the glory. Christians need to be careful. I know it's tempting, not just as individuals, but as churches. I've seen this. I'm not going to name churches. Even if you come up to me privately, I'm, I'm just not going to tell you this thing. All right? But there's a, a very well-known church, and they're doing lots of good things for people. And people are like, oh, wow, look, you do this and you do this. And slowly but surely, they stop proclaiming the gospel. Because the good works are going to get them the pat on the back. Oh, you're an amazing church. Oh, you're, you're an amazing group of Christians. But it's the gospel message that you're all sinners in the need of a Savior that is offensive. And they're doing some good things, but they are not saying the good news anymore. And I get it. You, you build up a reputation. You build up favorability among people. By the way, that helps get things done. When the pagan world around you loves what you're doing and it gets things approved for you and you can do this and you can do that, I'm sure it's tempting, but we have to make sure that that glory never is received, not by me as an individual, not by you as an individual, not by us as a church. The glory is God's. Amen? Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. Number three, he tried to buy the gift of God. He tried to buy the gift of God. Look at verses 18 and 19. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This flies in the face of the gospel message itself. The God of the Bible is not a pagan God made of hands. The God of the Bible is not one God among many who needs the other gods in order to get things done. If you read the stories of the gods of the Greeks or the gods of the Sumerians or any of these other gods, there's many gods. And none of them are all-powerful. They need the help of other gods in order to get things done. In some of these creation myths, you'll even see these gods as they're fighting. They need amulets and they need charms and they need incantations because they don't have enough to defeat the other gods. If it's a pagan god, there's something the pagan god needs that you have. The pagan god needs your money. The pagan god needs this. The pagan god needs that. Because without you, he just isn't enough. But the God of the Bible is all-powerful. The God of the Bible is the one and only true God. 
The God of the Bible alone is infinite. The God of the Bible alone is a necessary being. All other beings, both seen and unseen. So this is angels and demons, as well as things that we can see in creation. All depend upon God for their very existence. God depends on nothing for his existence. The idea of magic is the leveraging of evil powers. That's the idea of magic. That you can somehow obligate the gods or obligate the demons or whatever they are to do what you want them to do. That is why this idea is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. And some people might say, well, but this isn't a gospel. This is, you know, this is just like spiritual gifting and maybe it's not the same thing. No, because this is how God works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts forth this principle clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. You can bring nothing to the table. Nothing but your sins. It is the gift of God, not of works, he says again, lest anyone should boast. There's a reason why God gives grace. It is the only way God can work in such a way that the mouths of sinners are stopped and all glory must be given to God. If God needs something from you, if you're able to buy anything, whether it's salvation or spiritual gifting or whatever it is, then God is being robbed of his glory. You're involved. It's your wit, your talent, your money, whatever it is. And we have to realize that even if by God's grace, and I pray he uses you all mightily, I really do. Mightily doesn't always mean the biggest in quantity, it could be. But it means that I hope you all have a profound impact on somebody else for Jesus and the kingdom. Every single one of you. I want that for you. And if somebody sees that in you, what's going to enable you to deflect the glories if you realize that you did nothing to deserve the gifts that God gave you? Nothing. There is nothing to boast. When we give our gifts to God, I know sometimes we pat ourselves on the back. Do you ever do this? Where, you know, I remember there's times where I said a real kind word to a really, you know, not nice person. I'll put it that way. You know what I mean? Like they, they always, they didn't even deserve a kind word. They were just mean, nasty, always stirred up strife and division, all that. And I said a kind word and, you know, I kind of expected like a thank you. Nope. Didn't get it. It, it, it was bad. Or, you know, you you bless somebody with a gift or something and you're like, oh, you know, I'm just giving that freely. I'll probably get a thank you. No, 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 didn't get it, you know, just, and you kind of realize, oh, you know, there, there's a little bit of, of the strings attached in our gifts. And we can kind of think that that's the way it is with God, that, that somehow, some way, we have earned it. But the gospel message that this is entirely of grace. We have deserved nothing that we have, and this includes spiritual gifts. As a matter of fact, the word for spiritual gifts in Greek is charismata, grace gifts. That's what it is. Built into the very word is the basis of its reception. You are not called to be a minister, a pastor, a leader, a deacon, an elder, a missionary, a mother, a father, a wife, whatever it is, because of your righteousness, but rather the grace of God. Who better to know this than the Apostle Paul himself? He recognizes that God gave him an incredible ministry. He was even able to say, it, it's even more, it, on the surface, it's even more profound and widespread than the ministry of Peter and James and John. My ministry, I've labored more than he always said, but what did he say? Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. He recognized I'm the least of all the apostles. He even says, I'm not worthy to even be called an apostle. Paul gets it. Our gifting for the kingdom is not based on anything else. And you know what? While this is humbling, I think it is also freeing. Sometimes we limit ourselves because we bought into a works-based mentality. God will only use me if I get all this done. God will only use me if I have this much. God will only use me. Nope. God will use you because he loves you. 
That's the reason. It's not what you have. There's nothing you can give to God that he doesn't already have. What you can simply give him is your heart. Give back to him what is already his. And he will continue to fill you with his spirit so that you can minister effectively to God. The gospel message is free. The power of the Holy Spirit is free. We are to always remember that, which means we can never look at ourselves as being better than any other person, no matter how much God uses us. Number four, his heart was bound by sin. His heart was bound by sin. Verse 23, he says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So this is spiritual insider discernment, right? What is being seen here is he is actually seeing past. Peter is seeing past the behavior. And he's seeing into the heart. And notice what he says. What is the cause of all this? He says, your heart is poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Interesting, this language of a root bearing, uh, being poisonous and bound in iniquity can be found both in Deuteronomy and in the book of Hebrews. In Deuteronomy 29.18, the Lord warns this, Beware lest there be any, any man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Hebrews 12.15 warns, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Again, sometimes people think that if, if I'm not sinning in a certain area, then my sin in another won't affect it in any way, shape, or form. But the funny thing is, sin poisons your whole life. It poisons you. People think I can man they're in the sin management business, you know, so I'll let sin run wild in this area. It's socially acceptable. My family doesn't care, the church doesn't care, society doesn't care. So I'll just, I'll manage it, because it doesn't seem to be that bad. And then I'll hope, since I'm not sinning in these other areas, that that'll always be the case. Sin doesn't work that way. Have you noticed this? If you start tolerating sin in one area, it can start entering into areas you thought you would never have a problem with. Literally. We shouldn't boast in the fact, well, I, I just don't struggle with this. I think we could all say, look, there's just certain sins as far back as I can remember, I just didn't have a problem with. Right? And so we can boast in ourselves and say, hey, there's no possible way I could do X. Because I've just never struggled with it. But guess what? If you tolerate sin in, an un in another area, it looks unrelated on the service, but if you are living a life for your own glory, that's just how you live life every day, even the little decisions that don't look necessarily even more. But if you're doing it for your own glory and you're not giving glory to God, and you have a workspace mentality, you'll find your heart starts to get poisoned by sin. And then the next thing you know, you're capable of doing a sin you never thought you could do. That's how people get there. Tolerating sin in one area, probably often a little area. A little area that we just don't think matters. But friends, I want to show you, there is no such thing as a little sin. There's no such thing. And I mean it in this sense, that even the little of, of sins can poison your heart towards God. And if your heart is becoming poisoned toward God, then suddenly all kinds of other things become possible. And I just don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for me. I'd rather catch it now. I'd rather deal with it now. I don't want to wait till everybody knows it's a problem. Don't wait till your wife or your husband says it's a problem or your kids, or the church, or whatever. Don't wait. Deal with it now. And don't say to yourself, it's in this area, and therefore it cannot touch any other. That is how the things we swore we could never do, we begin to do. Lastly, he refuses to pray. Verse 24. It says, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, 
that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now, this is an interesting point. And for this, you'll have to go back to verse 22 just briefly. What did Peter tell Simon to do? He says, repent therefore of this wickedness and pray. And just in case that's not obvious in English, in Greek, it is an imperative. It's a command. So he's not saying, hey, here's a suggestion. No, as an apostle of Christ, he's commanding him to do what he's telling. He says, repent and pray. You pray. Verse 24, Simon says, no, you pray. Simon is not praying. We have to be mindful. I think this probably relates to point number four. What's one small way, very small, almost unnoticeable, that very few people would even know is happening or not happening? What might that be? How about your private life of prayer? Little prayerlessness every day. We just don't regard God in our thoughts. Because that's what prayerlessness is, friends. We can say, oh, I believe in God, I love... If you don't pray, you're functioning as an atheist. That's the thing. You might not be an intellectual... No, I believe in God, I believe in prayer. I even believe the Bible, for goodness sake. Yeah, if you do not regard God in your heart... That is functional atheism. Prayerlessness is practicing the awareness of God. Prayer is the air that a believer breathes. What happens if you can't breathe? What happens if you're Muhammad Ali or a Tyson Fury or a Mike Tyson? You're the best boxer there is. You're, you know strong, powerful, you can knock any man in the world out with one punch. Yeah, but what happens when that man is out of breath? You real if you watch bo I like boxing by the way. And if you ever watch boxing, it doesn't matter how strong, how ripped, how muscular, when they're gassed, when they're exhausted, when they're no longer able to get enough oxygen into the muscles, any one of you could knock them out. Any one of you. Prayerlessness is a ceasing to breathe. You know, a man once asked the great prince of preacher, Charles Spurgeon, on the streets of London back in the 1900s, and they said, Mr. Spurgeon, which is more important, praying or reading the Bible? To which Mr. Spurgeon replied, you tell me, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? <laughs> Many Christians, ironically, who acknowledge the importance of the Bible will nevertheless not acknowledge the importance of prayer. That would be like breathing in and not breathing out. One of the things the Lord's put on my heart over this, this last year and a half is he's looking for a praying church. He wants his people to pray. He wants them to humble themselves. He wants them to acknowledge, look, it, it doesn't matter how much money you have. You could be a church with a $50 million a year budget. And that won't save one single soul. You can't buy souls. We already covered this. You can't buy the gift of God. It's not wrong to have a big budget. It is wrong if you start believing that's the power of God. That God needs human money, human talent, or anything else in creation in order to be God. He doesn't. That is a God of our own imagining. And prayer, I think why it's so offensive and why we don't do it, is because it's the moment where we really acknowledge God as God. If I really don't need God, then why pray? I've got talent. I've got ability. I've got experience. I've got a resume. I've got history. I have social systems. I know people. I've got social currency. I can do this. Prayer acknowledges that without God, we can do nothing. And is this not what Jesus taught his disciples? I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. For without me, you can do nothing. We are in being invited once again to a posture of prayer. Not merely prayer in response to a need, we're praying for a future building home for the church. That, that's a, it's a practical need at some point, although we are in a beautiful 
beautiful place. Couldn't be more thankful for this little Garden of Eden God has given us. But eventually it makes sense. But how often is our prayer life defined just by intermittent needs? We want prayer to be about God's glory. I pray because God is God, not because I feel I have a particular need regarding a certain thing. If God uses certain things to bring us out of prayerlessness, praise God. That's why I can thank God for trials, right? I hate them. But I thank God for trials because trials wake me up and alert me to the fact, wow, I was growing prayerless. And it took this crisis, it took watching the country practically fall apart and everything for me to go, wow. What we're facing is not just, oh, hey, let's get some people together and let's, let's do this and do that. Like, we're not going to do this. This is so beyond us, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, look at what is going on. Oh, who's going to turn the country around? Who's going to turn the world around? It's like, you're not going to do it. Who's going to save souls? God and God alone. And so if we believe that, that it's going to be God, then prayer. We cannot be like Simon, who refuses to say and say, someone else pray. That's someone else's job. If we want to make sure that we are on a road to being a man or a woman of God, then prayer will be our daily bread. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, this is the whole verse, three words, pray without ceasing. Don't ever give up in prayer. Don't ever give up in believing in God and who God is. Don't ever let the world tell you you need the world or what it can do for you. Don't believe that. Believe that all you need is God. And if you've got God, you've got more than you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to gather together with these precious saints. You know them all by name. You formed them together when they were in their mother's womb. You've called them into existence, not just in any time in history, but here, today, in this moment, with all that is going on in the world, we are called to play our part, to be faithful in our day. And Lord, we confess that apart from You, apart from Your grace, the work of Your Holy Spirit <laughs> applying Christ to our hearts, we could easily go the way of Simon. And so, Lord, we just pray this morning as we respond that we would allow that loving work of conviction to take place. Lord, if you point out sin in our lives, it is not to condemn us. It is because you love us and you want to rescue and deliver us from those things which destroy us. So, Lord, speak now in this closing time of praise. Let it be a time of meditation. And prepare our hearts to receive Holy Communion today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.